Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, where is this? Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I am your host. I'm in Los Angeles. How's it going out there? Hope you're doing okay. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Brandy Wells, author of a new novel called The Cleaner. Myself in the shoes of the cleaner just felt like the natural point. I wanted someone who was their job, and so we only really see her in the office. There are a few moments where she's outside of the office, but she's only in the office and she's only interacting with uh, the security guard, the delivery person, and sort of the ghost of people that she invents that aren't there anymore, right? These vestiges of the daytime workers. And I'm like, what does someone's life look like if we just look at that? If this is the whole novel, we don't get her backstory. We don't get really why she's here or like where she comes from or what her other life looks like, what her personal life looks like because she doesn't have one, because she is her job, because her job is everything to her. Okay, that is Brandy Wells. Their new novel is called The Cleaner, available from Hanover Square Press. The Cleaner tells the story of a night shift office cleaner who works on the fourth floor of an unnamed office building in an unnamed city. None of the day shift workers know her, but she knows everything about them. She is, in a clandestine way, the office mastermind, privy to the secret desires and secret behaviors of her co-workers, in particular, the CEO, who may be driving the company into ruin. The Cleaner is a sly and witty and thrilling novel about an essential worker 
It's about the unseen people in the workplace and in life itself. It's also about the lengths that human beings will go to in an effort to forge connection. I had a great time talking with Brandy Wells, and that conversation is coming up in just a bit. A quick reminder before we get going that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe over at bradlisty.substack.com. I would love it if you did that. It is free. The newsletter is simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if that sounds appealing, head on over to bradlisty.substack.com and subscribe. Likewise, there is an Other People Patreon community. You can join it if you're a regular listener, if you love this show, if you get something from it, if you love literary culture, if you want to help this show continue into the future, join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can join the Other People Book Club. Did you know that this show has a book club? I have a book club. You can join it. For just $9.99 a month over at otherppl.com, get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I interview book club authors on this podcast, so it makes for a holistic and enriching literary experience. Today's episode is brought to you by Mary Sue Rucci Books, publisher of the novel The Storm We Made by Vanessa Chan. The Storm We Made is a sweeping epic about an unlikely spy and a secret love affair. Set in Malaya, now known as Malaysia, during World War II, this spellbinding novel chronicles a mother and her children as they grapple with the consequences of colonial power and the shocking repercussions that follow for their family and their country. The Storm We Made is a dazzling saga about the horrors of war, the fraught relationship between the colonized and their oppressors, and the ambiguity of right and wrong when survival is at stake. That's The Storm We Made by Vanessa Chan, available from Mary Sue Rucci Books. All right, so today's guest once again is Brandy Wells. Their new novel is called The Cleaner, available from Hanover Square Press. Brandy is also the author of a novella, entitled This Boring Apocalypse. It was published by Civil Coping Mechanisms in 2015. They are also the author of a full-length chapbook of stories called Please Don't Be Upset. It was published by Tiny Hardcore Press in 2011. Brandy's fiction also appears in a variety of publications, including Puerto del Sol, The Mid-American Review, and Tri-Quarterly. Brandy Wells has an MFA in creative writing from the University of Alabama, and a PhD in literature and creative writing from the University of Southern California. They are currently an assistant professor of creative writing at Cal State University in Fullerton. I am very pleased to welcome Brandy Wells back to this show and to share our conversation with all of you right now. So here we go. This is Brandy Wells and their new novel, One More Time, is called the cleaner. I was a dental assistant for a week and a half once. 
like pre yeah a week and a half they hired me they were gonna like train me to do the work on the spot instead of like having someone that had like a degree and being a dental assistant I was terrible at it I didn't understand what I was doing there was like an autoclave I was supposed to like clean the tools in and like I just felt so worried that I was doing something wrong and something was gonna be unclean and then I like cried when I saw blood and they paid me for three weeks of work and invited me to not come back. Um, it was Wait, a- I, this shows up in your book, right? There, I, I'm, the, yeah, the word yeah. autoclave. I, I remember the word autoclave. Yeah, yeah, it definitely it, it comes up. I'm happy to like be able to talk about that weird one and a half week job. Um, yeah, I was just I had dropped out of undergrad and was desperate for employment. I didn't know what to do, so I took my resume just all over town, and this was the job I found initially. Um, did not stick. I was not good at it. I would try to like go to the office and ask to file things. So I'd look busy because I was so unbusy. I didn't know where to be or what I was supposed to be doing. Um, And they wouldn't tell me. So I was definitely not qualified for it. I hope they hired someone that had a dental assistant degree. Wait, no, no. Was this in Los Angeles? No, this was in Georgia. I was in Statesboro, Georgia. I flunked out of my first semester or my first year of college. I got like straight zero point zeros across the board. I like showed up to class, got my attendance verified, took my financial aid check, and then just missed a few classes. So I felt too nervous to go back because I had missed classes. Like college was really overwhelming. I felt like I didn't fit in. I didn't understand how I was supposed to be, how I was supposed to talk about things. Like neither of my parents graduated high school, right? So like I'm just in totally unfamiliar territory. So I just like ruined it and then flunked out and found the job, uh, lost that job, found another job, which is the job I had all the way through undergrad. I worked at this like property management office where I sort of started as a receptionist, but ended up being the property manager because everyone over me got fired for stealing. Uh, so it just slowly trickled up without much of a raise until I was property manager for the last few years. Wow. So, okay. So some of these things I feel like show up in this novel and I, it, it's a natural question to ask because this book is so much about the workplace and it's so much about jobs, plural. It's about the job hierarchy. It's about everything from the top down. And I think in particular, it's about these unseen sort of like functionary roles that often get taken for granted and people who have like a ghost-like identity almost within the work hierarchy. Like for example, the cleaner, the person who cleans the office in one of these office buildings usually does it overnight. You show up in the morning for work and the work has been done. You probably never even see this person or you might not even see this person. And it begs the question, you know, have you ever worked a job like this? Uh, You know, it sounds like you've had a variety of different roles over the course of your life and now you're what, you're a PhD and you're a professor, like you sort of run the gamut. So can you just talk a little bit about your work history and what went into the genesis of this novel? Yeah, absolutely. I think the job, and it might not sound like on its face uh, that it comes from this, was that job where I was a property manager. I felt just completely invisible. I like took people's rent and I like rented apartments. I filed evictions. So like 
anytime something bad happened, it was my fault, right? Like I evicted them. I fined them. I like uh, didn't fix something in their apartment, but I couldn't do anything about it, right? So I'm standing between tenants and owners. I'm like this sort of middle point where I can only do what the owner allows me to do. So the tenants then are mad at me. And then if the tenants aren't paying their rent, the owner's then mad at me. So people are mad at me from both sides for the other party. So I didn't really exist. I felt like I like felt sort of unreal. And that was a hard, a hard way to feel, right? And I worked with a lot of people that I feel like felt that way, right? Like we had like painters and carpet cleaners and like a series of different maintenance men that like came and went. And so there are all these people that like didn't exist if that makes any sense like no one no one sees them or thinks about them beyond what their job is so that's what i'm thinking about for the cleaner because i think i'm so guilty of taking on that kind of role letting myself become my job and like letting the job be everything about me when i had that property management job i would like talk about it all the time because i sat there all day like talking to tenants and talking to owners and talking to prospective tenants and i had a friend like stop me mid-story once and say stop being boring uh, and my feelings are really hurt at the time but like looking back yeah i just talked about my job all the time it was everything and I think I, I think I brought that with me into academia, right? I got my bachelor's so I could get my master's. I got my master's so I could get my PhD. I got my PhD so I could get a job. And now I have the job and like, I guess now I'm working to get tenure and then I'll be working to get full. So it's so easy to let your work just expand and take up so much space in your life until it becomes the main thing about you. And it's where you get all of your meaning from and all of your happiness from. And the cleaner is sort of the, the cleaner is where all that comes to a head, right? She, not only is she getting all of her meaning and happiness from her work, but she thinks everyone else should too. And she wants to help them do it. She wants to help them be the best possible at their job. And it's sort of the natural endpoint of that line of thinking, right? If you buy into that and you believe all that and you believe that you are your work, then it only makes sense that everyone else is too. And that like, you need to help them fall into line. Well, we should tell listeners a bit more about this cleaner because it's not quite as simple as this is the person who comes in and cleans the office at night. This is a person who takes an unusual degree of pride in her work and an unusual degree of interest in the work lives and personal lives of her coworkers. And also, I think, views herself in a, in a way that is grandiose. Yeah. She, she thinks she's really important, even though no one else like sees her. She like, um, I think her ideas about herself and other people's ideas about her sort of butt up against each other as you like read on into the novel, but she doesn't interact with any of these daytime office workers, but she cleans their desk and like finds their password and logs into their computers and believes that she really knows them. Right. So she starts to, she's a storyteller. She starts to invent who they are and imagine their character, imagine what they're like. And they become these sort of fleshed out people and who they are to her is completely real. Right. Um, it's like a metafiction. It's, it's totally and completely real. So the reality that she's inventing is not exactly the reality that she's living. And I think it's a lot of fun to play with the play with that. As I go in the book, I, 
spent so much time in her head, though, that everything she does and says and thinks feels completely reasonable to me, right? Because I spent so much time sort of play acting and pretending to be her. So I've had a handful of people like in reviews, like call her a sociopath or like say things about her. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She's perfectly reasonable. But it's only because I spent so much time like in her shoes. That word, that word crossed my, you know, the word sociopath crossed my mind because you're dancing a line. There's a, like a line of criminality that she is approaching in terms of her access to people's computers and her uh, invasion of their private lives. I think she probably committed crimes in this book it's hard to say i'm not a, i'm not a lawyer i don't know but it seems like there's some there could be an argument made i guess is the point yeah she she clears someone's like google calendar she leaves mayonnaise like in someone's drawers like she she <laughs> intervenes in a big way i'm really surprised to see people like picking up that and thinking about that and thinking oh what do what does the cleaner think of me, right? Like I was so shocked that that would be the way people thought about the book because I thought they would relate to the cleaner. I thought this idea of like your identity being your job and being worried that you're like deriving too much meaning from your job. I thought that would be so relatable because I know so many people that the main thing about them is their job, right? You meet a new person and the way they introduce themselves is they tell you what they do for work as though that's who they are. So I, again, I'm just shocked that like she's not more relatable because in the world I live in, so many people are defined by their work. Well, it's a very easy thing to have happen. It's happened to me before where your identity does get subsumed and your sense of self-worth feels really tied to what is happening at work. And it's because it's where you spend all of your time. And there are certain work environments, and maybe this is even the case for most work environments, especially in corporate settings where there's a lot of toxicity and internal competition. There can be a lot of dysfunction, you know, that is happening, uh, between people and it can really take over even if you're a person who knows better. Yeah. And like we're tricked into it too, right? Like our work is meaningful, right? Like when I'm teaching, like, don't I care about my students? Right. And I do, right. A lot of my students are uh, first generation college students and community college transfers and like they have really busy schedules and I do really care about them. Right. But like how much of myself do I put into my job because I care about them? And then there's also this feeling of it being temporary, like people are only working really hard because they want a promotion, they want to get ahead, they want to do well. Um, but that feeling of it being temporary never really goes away in my experience. I have friends that like are just always working, like it's like nine and 10 o'clock and they're still like working. So like, I don't know that that's real. Right. I think these are like capitalist tricks to like get us to buy into our jobs and to buy into being employees. It doesn't seem healthy. And it's like when we talk about capitalist tricks, like I'm, I'm on board. I think that there's something systemic about these kinds of relationships that people have with their job and how it pertains to their identity. But then like, as I start to dig deeper into it, questions arise in terms of like, well, who is responsible for these systemic 
dysfunctions and these these attitudes that are sort of pervasive. I guess it's like the kings of capitalism. <laughs> I mean, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's, there's got to be influential companies and business people who create these kinds of structures and have success with them financially, even if it comes at a steep human cost. Yeah. And then they they are repeated because other people want to experience similar like that's the way I'm imagining that the structures get built and the patterns unfold. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And that's at play in the book too, right? We see this person who's invisible to all the workers and she like defines herself by her job, but she's like hurting other workers, right? In order to like do well at her job, right? So this idea that we have to step on someone else's back to get ahead, that's ingrained in capitalism, right? So even as we're being hurt, we hurt others. Uh, so I'm so interested in that. And I'm so interested in what it's like to be complicit. Um, I I can't help but think again of like the time I spent being basically a landlord, right? I was really struggling. Like I was overdrawing my bank account constantly, struggling to make ends meet. I lived in one of those apartments too. And like my closet doors fell off and my fridge made a really loud humming noise. And my apartment was like eaten up with like roaches and fleas. But I was also the landlord and I was fining people and evicting people and not making allowances. Like someone had like a secret pet and I made them get rid of their pet, right? Like I'm doing all these things that are really harmful to people because it's my job, because I need the money, because I'm struggling. So I'm sort of complicit. And I think, you know, I'm older now and I have a lot more awareness and I wouldn't have a job like that. But right at like 18, 19, 20, 21, like I didn't have that kind of awareness. I was lucky to have employment. I was lucky to have full-time employment. All throughout undergrad, I worked around 50 hours a week, right? And like took evening classes or sandwiched classes in the middle or took classes and then like worked on the weekends to make up my hours. So I was, you know, I was desperate for it. By the time I left the job to go and get my MFA, I like knew how bad it was and I knew how bad I had become, right? I think the things that we did to people stick with me. I remember I had a manager that um, had all of someone's belongings removed, even though they hadn't fully moved out. And like all their stuff got thrown away. It was like the back seat that went into a van. It was family pictures. It was like their children's toys. They had like half moved out and she decided they must have been moved out and just had their stuff thrown away. And they came home to their apartment and it was just bare. Everything was gone. It had been cleaned and painted. The carpet had been cleaned. And so when the guy came into the office, she wouldn't come out of the back room. And I had to sit at the desk and like interact with this man and like receive what had happened and receive his feelings about what had happened and not be able to help him, right? And then later I was the one that had to go sit in in court, right? When they sued us for the money. So I'm sitting next to this like swarmy lawyer who's like greasy and like a really nice suit. And I'm again, this poor college kid, right? Like taking classes like late and early classes and working on the weekend. And I'm sitting there and like, he's sort of looking at me like I'm trash, like I'm nothing. And I'm sitting there kind of rooting for them, right? They're suing us and I want them to win. I want them to get all the money and I want them to get the feeling of having been right. Um, so I just can't get away from that feeling of participating in capitalism 
and also being harmed by capitalism. You can't get away from it though, right? Like it's, it's hard to escape. I think there are all kinds of strikes and all kinds of things that we can and should do. And it's just so impossible to like grapple with what's ethical to do. Yeah. It wounded you, this, these experiences clearly. And I think most of us, you live long enough, you're going to experience some of these things. They're going to mark you. And there's a moral implication. That's the thing is that you become involved in this. And in some sense, you're part of the problem when you're working for this company and you recognized it because you have like a moral compass. I think some people just say, well, fuck it. This is the system. They just kind of go with it. And, and I mean, I kind of did, right? Like I had the job like six or seven years. Like, so from the gap of when I dropped out of college and then went back to school until I left to get my MFA. But I also had this feeling that I, I couldn't do any better. Like, I just didn't think I could get another job. Didn't, you know, and I didn't have a well, safety net. Yeah, exactly. And I, I don't think that's, that's not a knock against you. I think, you know, you say I would, if I had known what I knew, at age 22 that, you know, when versus what I knew at age 18, I wouldn't have had a job like that. Maybe not. But I think a lot of times people just have the job they have and they're lucky to have a job at all. It's not as easy as just snapping your fingers and going to some rosier company that has a better uh, situation, you know, for people and treats people better because who's to say you'd find anything at all. And then you could be out in the street. So I think a lot of times people are just doing the best they can. Yeah, you're right. I think that's true. So navigating all of this clearly marked you and clearly feeds into this book. And as you were talking earlier about the cleaner, the protagonist of your book, who cleans this office building, you referred to her as a storyteller. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is that there was a moment as I was reading, there are multiple moments, but it did occur to me that there is a kind of metaphorical thing happening where the cleaner in the world of this office building sort of reminds me of the writer in the larger system of humanity. Did that metaphor ever occur to you in an explicit way as you were writing or was it something that kind of came to you after the fact or or not at all? I I think it definitely occurred to me. It's the kind of writing I like. It's the thing I'm most drawn to. And I've always liked um, storytelling that that did that. Like, even as a little kid, I liked that. Um, Do you remember the Muppet Babies cartoon? Yeah, I do. So in the Muppet Babies cartoon, the Muppets would begin, like, imagining something. And then it would become real. And then we'd all get to see it happening. And I didn't have the word for that as a little kid, right? I didn't know what that was called. I didn't know to call that metafiction. But, like, that kind of storytelling where someone in the story begins to imagine something and it becomes concrete has always been my favorite thing. I love it when people do that. There's a book that came out last year, Miss um, March. Did you read Miss March? Hmm. You should. It's it's incredible. Incredible. Um, the narrator like imagines all these conspiracies and things that are happening, and she's completely unreliable. But you don't really get all of that. So we think that the story she's telling us is the real story, and it's a thriller, right? So we see in the end that like the story she's telling us wasn't the real story. We see like her unreliability sort of like laid bare, and I just love that that trick. I love that conceit. I love anytime 
uh, someone tells a story within a story. There's that Jesse Ball book, The Way Through Doors, right? Where someone's telling a story and someone in that story begins telling a story and someone in that story begins telling a story. And you have all these layers and it's slippery and the people from the different stories begin interacting and it's this wild romp of a book. So anything that does that is is my favorite thing and the thing that I most want to do, right? Like, I love tangents. I love anecdotes. I love interiority. I love all the little specifics, right? That's that's always what I want to hear. And that's always what I want to write. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, and there's also a kind of, there, there is something deeply human and deeply interesting about an office environment for all of its banality and human suffering. Sure. <laughs> there is an intimacy that we have with our colleagues at work because we spend so much time with them day in and day out. Mm -hmm. And there can be really deep friendships formed or this like temporary but intense sense of camaraderie and intimacy that can happen. And it can be dispiriting to realize how easily it can all dissipate. You know, if a company goes under or somebody gets fired, it's just like they're gone. It's like they died. Yeah. <laughs> and you never hear from these people again. You know, you think like, wow, I spent like years of my life seeing these, these people every single day. And then it ends and you never see them again. That's, That's so that. real. When I had the the property management job, these people felt like, everything right because I was full-time in the office with various people so like when I first started working there and I was the receptionist uh the assistant manager and manager felt like pseudo parents right like they were giving me like makeup advice and dating advice and clothing advice and I was going to their house for dinner and I got like a second job with one of them at this bar and like was working both jobs with her and they felt so important to me and I think they probably hate me now because in large part I'm why they why they lost their job right like I think I like outed them for stealing money which like 
I didn't even really mean to do, but I guess I did. So I. Wait, what happened? Like Pete, they were embezzling money from the company. They were they were paying. They were like paying people they knew to paint apartments that weren't being painted, right? So they were just like giving them all this uh, money for work they weren't doing. And then um, they would split, and they would split it basically. Yeah, probably. yeah, yeah. And, you know, and the other one, like, I think she had a tragedy in her life happen and just quit coming to work. And we tried to cover for her for a really long time, but eventually had to, like, stop covering. And I think she, like, felt very angry that we, like, ratted her out for never being in the office. Um, But I had been, like, doing her job and doing it poorly, which is, to be honest, how I did most of that work, really poorly. (laughs) Um, I was awful at my job. My like least favorite task is anything administrative where I, I need to remember an email or remember a to-do list or do something by a particular time. My brain doesn't work that way. And I'm like filled with dread about those tasks. I'll spend like hours thinking about an email I have to send, which by the way is like such a big part of like publishing a book is like emailing people and asking for things and doing administrative tasks. I feel like Oliver Twist asking for a spoonful of soup. Uh, it's <laughs> right. a, I feel so cringe and so nightmarish doing it. But yeah, I was really terrible at the work, but they were such important people to me uh, that like felt definitive. And now we're not in each other's lives at all. Well, and with, with respect to the people who are stealing money, like, did you out them? Like you said, you sort of did it inadvertently, but you, you must have noticed that it was happening and then you said something and they got caught. Yeah, I think I like brought questions and like, it's hard to, to even look back and think about what my intentions must have been. And like, maybe they were nefarious. Maybe I was trying to like out them and get them fired. But I think I was just like really confused about what was happening. And so I like brought questions to my boss, like, what is this? What's this? And I think I probably should have like confronted them about it instead. But I was a kid. I was a stupid kid. And also my I like got the job at the time because I had been dating the boss's son, right? So like there's an extra layer of weirdness there. Oh yeah. Well that'll add a that'll add a layer of complication. And yeah. I feel like what we're talking about is like the you know, again, the moral component of a person's work life and the way that you can come up against questions of a very serious nature related to morality, right and wrong, even yeah. uh, legal and illegal. Sure. And this happens, I think, in, in white collar crime oftentimes where you have maybe somebody who is the point person for some sort of illegal scheme and then you have the people who get kind of caught up in it who also go down with the ship. And I'm not saying it happens all, I'm not saying it happens everywhere, but it does happen often. And it's easier than you would think to get caught up. Sure. Right. And to not know how to behave. Like, do I go to my boss or do I go to them individually? But if you had gone to them individually and said something about this embezzlement, it would have been easy for you to get roped into it. I think you did the right thing. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. hard once once you're in possession of the information that something is awry. I guess you can just pretend you don't know and keep quiet. But if you go to the people who are perpetrating 
And then you're somehow in cahoots with them. And then it can become damaging to you, not just with respect to that job, but with respect to future jobs, because that kind of thing can follow you around, you know? So it, it can get dicey is the point. Yeah, absolutely. I can't help too, but think of the metaphor. It's from Clerks uh, of the Death Star. Do people that work on a Death Star, are they complicit in what the Death Star is doing? Uh, when you're talking about like uh, being complicit in the different schemes. But yeah, I like, and looking back, maybe I would have lost that job too if I had tried to confront them, right? And then they would have had time to cover their tracks. So I don't know. I just, it's so hard to look back on 18, 19, 20, 21 year old me. Like, I feel like that person is so separate from who I am now. Like that, like the things I did and said and the way I acted just feel like completely foreign. Well, we, we grow as people sure. and, we ch- and we change. And I, I'm curious too about the place that you were in. You said you were in Statesboro, Georgia. Yeah, it's pretty and, rural Georgia. Uh, it was a college town about an hour away from where I grew up, which is Vidalia, Georgia, which was a very rural town, like an onion town, the sweet Vidalia onions, right? Yeah, I, I think from. we talked about that last time you were on the show. Oh, I'm I'm sure we did. Um, any any chance I, I have to bring up Yum Yum the Onion, the town's mascot, I'll do it. <laughs> um, I don't think enough people know about Yum Yum. If you Google Yum Yum the Onion, he's terrifying. Uh, please do it. Um but yeah, I, I graduated with a class of like 100, right? Like from a really small kind of rural town. And so this was like the next biggest place to go to college, like far enough to live there, but like uh, close enough that I could go home if I needed to. So I moved there to go for college. But then when I dropped out, I just stayed. What college? Uh, Georgia Southern. Okay. So Georgia You've Southern. You've probably not heard of it yeah. Well, I've heard of it. I've heard of it. You know, sure. I haven't been to state. I haven't been to Statesboro though. You're but. all good. Yeah, you're all set. You don't have to go. Anytime I mention Georgia, people are like, "Oh yes, Atlanta." But I was like four and a half hours from Atlanta, like the furthest thing possible from Atlanta. I too like Atlanta. Um, shares a lot of similarities with Los Angeles, right? But, like the way the neighborhoods work, the way traffic works, it feels familiar. Oh, it does. Okay, yeah, I have yeah, not yeah. spent. I have not spent. I've spent a little bit of time in Atlanta, but not. It's so spread out and it might take you like an hour and a half to drive seven miles. You know, you'll, you'll feel at home. (laughs) Feel at home. Wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds delightful. So you set out to write this book with the idea, what? That you're like, I'm going to write a book about office culture from the perspective of the quote unquote least important person in the hierarchy. I don't think I thought about it like that at all. I don't think I ever thought of her as the least important person. Um, I think that felt like the most natural place to put myself into someone's shoes. I think I always feel like an outsider. I always feel like a little set apart, right? And I think that's a product of like what it feels like to be in academia and come from like a lower income family and come from a family where we like my parents didn't go to college. We didn't talk about like academic things over dinner. Um, That sort of blue collar family. My mother cuts hair. My stepfather cuts meat in a grocery store though. I think he's retired now. Right. So I just always felt at odds in ways that I think even my kindest friends sometimes don't see. 
a lot of talk around the USC stipend, right? When I was a PhD student, uh, people talking about it being plenty of money was always really astonishing to me. And it's because they had safety nets. It's because they had nice things, right? Like they had nice furniture that they already owned. They had nice clothes that they already owned. They'd had dental like care for years and years. They were not in need of like emergency dental care. They didn't need their wisdom teeth removed at 30 years old because they could never afford to do it, right? All these things that happen when you don't come from money and like the ability to take risk is affected when you don't come from money right you just you can't put yourself out there you can't risk doing anything you have to save you can't buy really nice clothes you have to buy fast fashion you have to buy things that are cheap and like hope that they don't wear out right and then so putting myself in the shoes of the cleaner just felt like the natural point and so thinking about like what I wanted to do with the novel I wanted someone who was their job. And so we only really see her in the office. There are a few moments where she's outside of the office, but she's only in the office and she's only interacting with uh, the security guard, the delivery person, and sort of the ghost of people that she invents that aren't there anymore, right? These vestiges of the daytime workers. And I'm like, what does someone's life look like if we just look at that? Is this and if if this is the whole novel, we don't get her backstory. We don't get really why she's here or like where she comes from or what her other life looks like, what her personal life looks like, because she doesn't have one because she is her job, because her job is everything to her. She um, she like she likes her job. She loves it, loves it so much that she steals little items from work and brings them home so she can make a little mini office in her apartment because it feels familiar, right? <laughs> well, it's, it seems strange to me. And when I say least important, I just mean like in a general hierarchical sense, sure. office culture, not like a, an unimportant human being, but just like- But she thinks she's really important, right? Yeah, um, well, yeah. And I've been in her head for so long, so I feel a little defensive of her. I'm like, no, she's the most important. I get it. I get it. And I mean, it's interesting to have somebody who cleans an office and deals with the filth of other human beings and just the filth of life, which is an, another thing I want to talk to you about in greater detail, <laughs> could have such a bullish attitude about her job, the work she does night in and night out, and her importance to the place. It is a little bit delusional. Sure. It, but but it's not entirely wrong either in the way that the story plays out and the impacts that she has on sure. these vestiges of people, as you put it, who work the day shift because she is getting into their computers. She is meddling in their <laughs> lives. She is having an impact on outcomes, work-related and not. So it's kind of a combo. And when it comes to the descriptions of her job, I think I, this is just underlining what a neatnik I am and how much I love cleanliness. Certain aspects of her approach I was vibing with. I was like, okay, this is, this person likes clean. I like clean. <laughs> but also thinking of the ways in which people often behave in office environments. I'm thinking of the microwave in the break room. Is there ever a microwave in a break room anywhere that is not just disgusting? People have no shame is my point. <laughs> like they will just trash an office bathroom, trash an office kitchen because it's somebody else's responsibility to clean it up. 
You're totally right. Uh, and these things are nightmarish to me. I have OCD, which means that um, I have a lot of really nitpicky things about cleanliness, right? Like I like clean my stove three times a day. It's pristine. I like Swiffer oh. several times a day. I have cats, right? So I'm thinking about cat hair, um, you know, and I have a lot of intrusive thoughts about things being clean and contaminated. So like my thoughts about cleanliness are pretty extreme. So I really notice when things are not clean, like I could never dream of using a microphone or microphone, a microwave, right. In an office, like it would feel so unsanitary to me. Um, there was this thing going around on the internet where people were talking about in bathrooms, when you go to grab the toilet paper, um, they had the sudden realization that the last toilet paper touch, someone else might have touched as they were tearing it. And I was like, how did you not think of that before? My whole life, I've been tearing off the first little bit, throwing it away and getting the new bit. I would never take the toilet paper that someone's hands had touched and, and touch myself with it. Um, so the idea that other people aren't thinking about these things was astounding, right? Because it's my normal, right? I think I think about all these little things all the time. And I, I think that probably comes through in the book. I d it does. I mean, that's why it's a natural question to ask because you're so good at the details of cleanliness and cleaning that I couldn't help but wonder what your relationship to it is. And I don't think I have OCD, but I will say this, like I was just thinking about this, I guess, as I was reading your book, but it was before, you know, I talked to you, mm. how much less interested I am in like eating at restaurants than I used to be. Some of it's a function of age and context and situation, but I'm just like, that's eh, kind of dirty. I feel like the people who work there resent me. I don't think it's clean. <laughs> Oftentimes the food isn't even that good. You're paying too much for it. I'm just like, nah. But cleanliness bothers me in rest. Like I get grossed out thinking about kitchens at restaurants. <laughs> yeah, you have and, to go in and not think about it. You have to, and, and I can eat at a restaurant. It's not like it's debilitating, but I'm just less interested. And then I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine about hotels, which also sort of skeeve me out. Like being a hotel maid or cleaning person, like think of like New Orleans, think of Las Vegas, think of these places where people go to have the biggest weekend ever and they just blow it out and do God knows what and having to clean up after these people day after day, you must see some horrific things. And I was talking to my friend and kind of make, I give, I've given this speech more than once. I'm like, hotels, what's going on? You don't know the people who clean these rooms. Do they really clean them all the way? <laughs> like, and I was like, I can't understand how anybody could take a bath in a hotel bathtub. Like, how could you sit in a tub, like put your, your bare bottom <laughs> in a tub where there had been like, God knows, who knows, you know, like it's people's feet and whatever, you know? And I'm just like, no, thank you. And she was like, oh, I don't have any problem with that. She's like, we're all part of the human soup. I'm just like, she's resigned. She just doesn't, she can flip that switch off. And so I guess maybe I'm too uptight. You're too uptight. I'm imagining you're not bathing at like the Holiday Inn or whatever. If I do, I'm wearing flip-flops in the shower for sure. I don't want my bare feet to touch the shower. Yeah, I have a really hard time in hotel rooms. I have a hard time with the bedding. Um, the big, If there's ever like a big quilt or a comforter, I know that those will always get washed right because they're so heavy so i throw that on the floor first off i'm not like letting that be on my body um but yeah it's it's a whole nightmare um and i, I hate to keep bringing up 
the the property management job but like i saw all these apartments after people lived in them too and like oh a similar kind of mess of things that people leave in their apartments are horrifying we had a we had a severed deer head in a fridge uh which is like an image i'll never forget we had things that are like maybe too horrifying to describe like on on air <laughs> like I, I think it might be too upsetting to hear but like a lot of really like disgusting things and like, like what filth. give me one example here all right i went into an empty apartment i often had to check empty units to like make sure everything looked okay and there was something weird and gooey on the floor and so i just turned around and went out and told the maintenance man i was like hey can you go clean this up like i don't know what it is um and he went and he figured out that what it was um and trigger warning here you should you should skip this if you don't want to hear like animal <laughs> violence oh god um, someone had opened the back balcony door of this apartment complex and they had let a mother cat into the empty apartment and then closed the door. She gave birth to the kittens and then they all thirsted or starved to death and died in the apartment. So what looked like a gooey blob on the floor was that dead cat. Uh, oh which God. is like a thing I have nightmares about. Like I'm a, I'm a cat person, right? I feel like my cats are the main thing about me. Um, it's How many you cats. got? I have two black cats. They're very handsome and good boys, Loon and Caliban. Any chance I have to talk about my cats, I'll do it. They're, again, such a big part of my day and my life. So this was just horrifying to me. So the things that we found in apartments were so gross, uh, so upsetting, so disturbing. And a lot of like used condoms on the ceiling and like... <laughs> There was an apartment with weird, like, test tubes full of stuff. I was like, I don't know what these test tubes are for. Like, little racks with just tubes in them and, like, water. And I was like, I don't know what's happening. So I, w- I would just, like, quickly back out of those. But I felt like walking into the apartments that are so gross, like, the smells on me too, right? Like, you could feel it in my clothes and in my hair. I had longer hair then. So, like, yeah, transitioning back to, to hotel rooms. Also really upsetting, uh, cleaner than the apartments for sure. But like, yeah, the idea of like, how often is the carpet in the hotel cleaned, right? I probably don't want my bare feet touching this carpet because like, who knows what's on the carpet? Yeah. yeah. So what about Airbnbs? Are you equally? I have never Airbnb'd and I never Ever. will. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's I, it. That's intense. You're not, you're not dealing with that at all. No, I can't. Uh, I can't do it. Yeah, I, I have like... So many things about uh, cleanliness. I have a lot of trouble eating people's house, people's houses and like a potluck I can't do with then there's like lots of dishes. I like feel really stressed out about it, thinking about like all the individual people. Um, it's just rough. It's a rough go. It's it's tied to the OCD. Yeah. I remember that when I was a kid. I mean, it, I, I, it, was, it was sort of, it wasn't across the board, but I remember like, being at a friend's house and his mom's like, you want a glass of milk? And I was like, no, I don't want a glass of milk. I don't want to drink milk in somebody else's house. I don't know why. <laughs> just sort of grossed me out to think about it. <laughs> I love, I don't want to drink milk in someone else's house. I, think that's a- I don't drink milk now at all. Yeah. I'm like, I don't even deal with the, uh, yeah, I'm not a milk drinker, but I, I get it. I get it. And potlucks are, so it depends on the situation. I mean, if it's like, if it looks clean, it looks clean. But if it's like, outdoors and it's like hot like i don't understand these people who go to these potlucks and it's like in somebody's yard and there's all this sweaty food in the in the sun and flies are flying i'm just like 
What is happening here? Ev is clear image from when I was a kid of watching uh, my great aunt and another of her nieces make cupcakes. And the girl was stirring the frosting and she licked the spoon and then kept stirring with the spoon. And when I wouldn't eat a cupcake, my aunt got really mad at me. And I was like, I can't, I can't do this. And I'm just always imagining people doing that now. Right. Like, and I'm sure it's fine, but it's not fine for me. (laughs) So I have have a, a rough time. But also, if I cook something, I bet there's cat hair in it, right? There's cat hair everywhere. There's cat hair in my fridge for some reason. Like, I just, it drifts, you know? Well, I was going to say, what is that? I mean, you talk about cleaning your stove two and three times a day and swiffering constantly. I have to imagine you live in a very clean apartment, and yet my cat hair. Clean and bare. Yeah, there's a lot of cat hair. They're two cats. I love them so dearly that, like, everything they do feels okay to me. I had a cat um, a few years ago that was that was dying. He was like on a feeding tube and I was like hand feeding him uh, like canned food. And so I got really over a lot of things during that time, right? If you're like cat is dying and you're desperate for him to eat so desperate that you're like touching this like pate cat food and having him eat it off your fingers. Like a lot of things cease being gross to you at that point, which is maybe how people feel about their kids. I don't know. I was know. just going to say, I was going to say it's exactly the same. You have children yeah, yeah. and it's like you get, you have to get over certain yeah, stuff. you just have this desperation and love and yeah, like I was so desperate for the cat to eat. He had pancreatitis and he wouldn't eat. If you have like, imagine it's like if you have a child that won't eat, it's probably like you can't communicate with them to like convince them to do it. It must be so stressful. It's that way with a pet too, right? I was like so desperate for him to eat and he couldn't understand that I was desperate for him to eat. Yeah, that's rough. But mm-hmm. I feel yeah. I think that, uh, you know, I can... F- I can deal if I have to. Like if I'm in a situation where there's no choice, I'll, I will, you know, I'll eat at the potluck or whatever. <laughs> but the, it, it, the issue for me is that it seems incontrovertible that clean is good mm. and filthy is bad. <laughs> and I don't understand how people can exist with this gray area. I get there's always like some degree of gray area. Like what is clean even mean? But I mean, come on. Like why can't we just as a people agree to like clean up after ourselves? I go over, I go through this in my own house. I'm just like, cause I'm the neat one. I'm like, come on guys. Like let's clean up. Let's keep it nice. It's so much nicer to be in a clean space than it is to be in a filthy space. Right? <laughs> they must be really relaxed. That's um, right. I'm I can't imagine uptight. what that would be like. It sounds lovely. So, I mean, good good for them. I don't know. But then again, I'm like, no. I think part of the reason they're so relaxed is that I clean up. <laughs> That's nice of you. Good work. Yeah. You should have seen me during the pandemic. I was, uh, you know, because everybody's spending a lot of time in the house and I'm just like, I was the one on my hands and knees, like scrubbing the showers and and I'm, you know, I'm a good cleaner. Somebody who cares about clean tends to be a good cleaner. So like you sort of want me to do it because I'm I'm detailed and I make it nice and everybody else gets to relax. Oh my God. I had a roommate during the pandemic that like I didn't really know well. It was just sort of a both needed an apartment situation. And you know, there was the thing about how long you need to wash your hands. I would hear her come in from outside and she would barely run the water. So I would just know that she like hadn't really washed her hands and I confronted her once or twice about it. And I was like, I have to let this go. Um, because this, 
I can't, I can't make another adult wash their hands. But You're supposed to was, sing happy birthday, right? You're supposed to yeah. sing. Yeah. I was so, that was a time when a lot of people learned they weren't washing their hands properly. Um, and I, I hoped that the hand washing would stick, but I feel that it hasn't having been in public restrooms with people that are just so quick, so fast. Yeah. Public restrooms. <laughs> I don't even, we won't even go there, but you know, sure. suffice, suffice it to say, I think humanity in general has cleanliness issues. And I have a friend who I want to say, I think he has OCD. He's a germaphobe is how he, he refers to himself. I don't know if that's OCD or if it's the same or different, but he's very particular, very, and also sure. very, fu- also very funny about it, but it's real. Uh, so he will be telling me about his work life and he will rave about Japan because it's such like by comparison, such like a clean place to be. Apparently it's oh. like a dream. So if you're a germaphobe, it's a great place to travel. <laughs> nice to know. Everything's yeah, everything's very, you know, tidy or whatever. And I think that's a nice value to have. Um anyway, so you write this book and uh I guess like, you know, it sounds like in terms of I don't want to give too much away, but in terms of the dramatic arc of the novel, you're drawing on some of the experiences we've touched upon personally uh, in your own work history. Was that in any way a surprise to you in terms of how the book uh, formed, particularly like the back half of it? Or is that always what you were going for? I think it was always what I was going for. I had written a couple of books that I like put in drawers before this book, right? Um, I feel like I feel like not enough people talk about the books they wrote that didn't get published, right? So I wrote a couple of books, stuck them in a drawer. Um, so I think at the start of this book, I had such a clear idea of where it was going, where I wanted it to go, and sort of like the shape of it. It made writing it much easier and faster. Um, and in the same way that like writing a short story, writing one short story prepares you to write the next short story because you learn what you did wrong, you learn what did or didn't work. Writing a novel, sticking it in a drawer helps you write the next novel, right? So when I wrote that book, I sort of knew what worked for me. Um, I have also tried before in the past writing a book that like, and then skipping around and writing the middle and writing the beginning and like that drives me crazy. I have to start at the beginning and right to the end, right? Like I need something that goes straight through. Um, there was some trimming, right? Like I think I definitely cut a little out of it. Um, but like that, that shape was pretty much like at the forefront of my mind as I started it. Well, that makes, I mean, that definitely, I feel like it makes it easier when you do have a sense of destination. Yeah. Though people do it all different ways. I've heard everything at this point on this show about how people approach it. <laughs> Uh, but I like the idea of having a sense of an ending at, at the very least, even though it could change, you know, maybe sure. certain, certain details change. At least you have something that you're writing towards. Yeah. Someone early on t- said something like, oh, I don't outline because it like takes the magic out of it. And like, screw that person because like having an outline or having a plan is so helpful. And like my outline can be magical too, you know, whatever. Right. Who's to say? But I think yeah. it's not like you. Ha- it's not like you're married to your outline either. Sure. It's okay to like try to make a plan, and then you can deviate from it if you yes. feel inspired to do so. But if you, I don't know. 
I don't even use outlines. So what am I talking about? Like, I, I think I maybe make a list of things or I have some little notes file that I'm working from that might, you know, loosely be referred to as an outline. Sure. But in the absence of that, I think you can still do it. It just might take longer. I think that's something I've heard. It's like, you know, if you're not going to outline, you're probably going to spend multiple years extra working on your book, trying to solve the things that an, like an outlining process might have helped you sort out more efficiently. I think there might be some truth to that. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sure. Yeah. And whenever I hear someone say, oh, I spent 10 years writing this book, I'm always like, how? How did you spend 10 years writing that book? Like, I did what that. Was, <laughs> what was your like job and support system like during that time? You know what I mean? Like, I think it, it is a position of privilege to have 10 years to be working on a book where you're like comfortable and you have time and space and sanity to do that. Um, I wasn't comfortable. I did have <laughs> Some time and space, but I had very little sanity. So two out of four isn't bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's half. <laughs> I think Good it's. Uh, I think it's just failure. You know, I think it's just failure. We, we, I would have loved to have finished it in like two years. I would have loved, in some <laughs> senses, to never have written it at all. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, but these things get their hooks into you, and then you know. No, you're right. Being comfortable takes, with failure is such a big deal. You got to get used to it. Like you say, you put you had in between. The last book in this book, you had some failed books that you put in the drawer? Yeah, I feel like I, I've i always been a person that failed a lot. Like I had to apply two years to get into an MFA program. Then I had to apply two years to get into a PhD program. And then I had to write a couple of books to get to the book that was the book. So like there are people that are like definitely more talented, but if they're, they're not good at it immediately, they just sort of quit, right? But then there are people that stick with it even if they're struggling with it and the people that stick with it and keep trying, um, often succeed. Right. That's right. That's right. So why do you stick with it? I, I think I just like doing it a lot. I think I like, like the activity of writing and it's because I like reading, right? Like I like both. I like storytelling that I enjoy it. And I just really wanted to do it. I really wanted a book. Not that other people don't really want a book, but I think I'm just accustomed to failing, right? I'm accustomed to not immediately being good at anything. I always take a while to figure things out. I don't think I ever like tried something and like was a natural, right? Like never in my life have I been a natural at anything. I have a friend who like, if he's not good at something immediately, he just won't do it. Right. Like if it's like some sort of sport or craft and he's, he picks it up and he's not good at it, he'll never try it again. Uh, it couldn't be me because then I wouldn't do anything. I'd sit around doing nothing all the time. So I feel like I've always had to sort of struggle and figure things out and just be comfortable being bad at things. 
Um, I'm trying to do like uh, embroidery now, right? Like sort of a, a mixed media embroidery. And I'm so bad at it. I like stab myself in the hands. My fingers are constantly like hurting because I've stabbed myself so much. But I like, I'm getting better at it slowly. So. And you sort of like the pain. It's, a, it's relatable. It's like, <laughs> I you like know. the. I, I like, I love seeing like measurable progress too, right? Because in writing, sometimes you don't have measurable progress. You can't tell that you're getting better at being a writer, but any kind of thing where you can like measure out that you're getting better at it. Um, I also like jog or run. And so like I can measure like I'm a little faster or I went a little further and it like I can like put it in a chart or a spreadsheet and like see improvement. There's something so fulfilling about being able to measure something because again, writing is so necessary and subjective, right? Am I better? I don't know. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And uh, I feel like people who have some, like some sort of really explicit natural gift, like a beautiful singing voice or mu- just musicality in general, the ability to dance, just a natural, because sure. you see this in children, like they just have it. That's like you're blessed or like a, a superior athlete somebody who's just like a fabulous athlete, like out of the box. Not that you don't have to refine it and work at these things, but these are gifts that are given to people. And so I think I've written about this. Maybe there might be a line in my book even, but it's like a joke I've told to myself and maybe others over the years where it's like, yeah, this is why athletes are always thanking God, you know, and like singers are always like praise. I'm like, yeah, I'd be thanking God too if I could like dunk and like run as fast as a deer. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like? And I think for most people, we're generally bad at everything. It takes, or or if we're good at something, it takes us a long time to like achieve mere competence. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. It would be nice. Wouldn't it be nice to have some sort of just undeniable gift? Yeah. I don't have, I don't have any of those, you know, neither. I'm trying to think of anything I'm naturally good at. I can spot a stray cat from a great distance when I'm outside, you know? I like I'm like always pointing, there's a cat, there's a cat when I'm walking with someone. So like that's that's as close as I get. Yeah. Well, you've come a long way. Yeah. Um, you know, I I I kept trying. I failed. I think the last time we talked, you said something about an agent and I latched onto it and I was like, Brad, how do I get an agent? And you like sort of like really patiently listed it out for me. So that was nice of you. You got an agent? I, you know, I did. Yeah, I did. I did years after that. Yeah. And you, were you, you. reject? were you rejected a lot? Uh, I did get some rejections, but I think uh, the agent I ended up with, Kate Johnson, who's just a dream, was like one of the first people I like initially queried. Um, they're also Patrick Cottrell, who wrote Sorry to Disrupt the Peace, uh, and Patrick and I are friends. It's also Patrick's agent. So he gave me a little intro there. Um, And I think she initially maybe softly rejected my work. And I said, oh, but you know, how about if if I revise it? And then I think she just liked me so much as a person that I wore her down, right? Like before she like offered, she was like liking my tweets. And every time she'd like my tweet, I'd be like, does it mean something? Uh, and later she's like i'm sorry i did that (laughs) Uh, i think we just liked each other as people so much right so but that matters and i mean as you say that it's worth pointing out that this is a work relationship though it's not like in a confined space so i think it's a little bit it's a little bit less intense in some ways 
But the issue of liking the people with whom you work is so paramount. Yeah. Like if you work in your dream job, but you work with awful people, you will be miserable in your dream job. If you work a hellish or you work a job that has like basically no connection to any of your deeper interests and you're literally just there for a paycheck and it means very little to you on the surface, but you work with people you love, yeah, you'll probably be happy in your work life. I think that's true. Yeah. And, and I'm someone that like desperately wants to be liked, uh, in return. So yeah, that definitely matters. I have these, uh, I'm teaching this graduate fiction class this semester. Um, and I just had my first class, so I don't know them well yet, but they're so cool. And I'm like, I hope these super cool grad students like me. <laughs> yeah, right. So the need to have them like me, uh, was really surprising. Uh, but they're so cool and interesting. So I get that. Like teaching, like I've done some teaching and it's, uh, there's something performative about it. Like, uh, you know, there's something performative about every job, but when it's just you standing in front of these students, you have to entertain them. Uh, it may be sure. a, a little bit less so in a workshop, though there's still some element of it, but especially, no, in you're a, right. you got to get up there and you got to engage and they've got to not be bored. Ideally. Yeah. And I'm not like a natural speaker. I'm not an extrovert. So like, it's not like my like uh, home space. So I definitely let them know that initially. Like, sorry, I'm not like super fun and entertaining. You're going to have to help carry this weight. Uh, we can't <laughs> listen to me talk. Like, I don't think I've ever really lectured, right? Where someone just talks for like 30 or 40 minutes. Like that would be so boring for them, right? I can't do it. Um, I'm just not good out loud. I need some time to collect my thoughts and to sort of like re-up them. I'm not like charismatic in that way, um, which I uh, so I admire. You, I, think, I think you're underestimating yourself. I think you're a good talker. <laughs> That's so nice of you. But I'm also talking about something that I've thought about a ton, right? And I'm, it's different when you're teaching because you're teaching like, you know, a couple of times a week. So it, it's not like you're talking about your one special interest for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what is it like to have this book go out into the world and be received? Has anything about that process surprised you? Um, gosh, it's still really fresh and new. Um, I'm so excited whenever I see it online or see anyone say anything about it. It feels like so wild to me. I had a friend, uh, I had a friend's partner tell me that he was nervous to let me in the house. He thought I was going to like go through the stuff in the bathroom. He's like, I've been imagining <laughs> you as the narrator. And I was like, well, you know, I definitely open your medicine cabinet and look at your stuff. But I think everyone does that. Um, <laughs> right. Like who, who among us has it? search for pills. Just got to search for pills. That's what I we just, all you know, do. I just want to see. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but I'm not like sneaking into people's houses and like rearranging their things. Um, but that would be a really fun promo, right? Like if I like posted a photo and I was like, Brad, I was in your house and here's what I did. <laughs> I'm trying to think, I'm thinking as you say this, of whether or not, I, I don't think I'm that nosy. If I go to somebody's house, I think I've, I maybe I've told this story before, but I have a friend who, whenever he goes to a party at somebody's house, he brings a small framed photograph of himself and he just like sneaks it in and like leaves it somewhere in their house, which I think is a very funny thing to who do. Who is this person? That's amazing. <laughs> a, one of my wife's friends. Uh, he's hilarious. He's a funny I, guy, but that's a I good thing to do, that. right? 
<laughs> I had a, um, a professor in undergrad who I read an essay. It's uh, Sonia Huber. She's written a lot about like health care and health insurance. And I read an essay where she wrote about like stealing prescription pills from someone because her health insurance was so bad before she got that job that like right. she, she needed them. And I was like, that's like, you know, it was like some wealthy friend. And it's like super relatable. Not that I've stolen anyone's prescription pills, but like that desperation, like I, I totally get it. But also, I'm super nosy. I remember even as a kid, I had this feeling that like if if I like rifled through like a drawer in my parents' dresser, I might find something like secret and interesting. There was never anything secret or interesting. But every time they like were out of the house, I'm like digging through the drawers to find the secret interesting thing. Uh, so I'm not digging through my friends' drawers, right? But like I'm like wondering all the time about the secret interesting thing that they have. Well, there's a lot going on with people. That's yeah. for sure. M much more than meets the eye oftentimes, or maybe all the time. And I think I can be overconfident. I have been in my past. I know this for a fact because I've found things out that have surprised me, but it's easy to sort of think you have a handle on people mm -hmm. when in fact you probably don't. There's always more going on than meets the eye. You got to really get to know somebody to really know somebody. <laughs> yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. So maybe you know them in this sort of superficial way, and then you have to rifle through their drawers if you're going to find out the truth. That's the answer. It's a, yeah. It's a necessary I, evil. <laughs> you have to. You have to open up their desk, go through their stuff, maybe look in their email, you know. Kill one of their houseplants just to see how they respond to uh, you know? the ephemerality of life. You know, it's a I, deep responsibility. I can't have a house plant. I wish I could have a house plant. My cats, I had a really small succulent and my smaller cat would pick it up, carry it to the highest place in the house and drop it on the floor over and over again until he broke the little pot it was in. Then he stomped on the plant and then he rolled around on the plant. So Damn. Like, I just can't, I'd long for a house plant. Um, well, you got to get a big one so the cat can't lift it up. Then he would poop in it, you know? Oh, oh right. It's just, it's, I'm just doomed. I You're just, doomed. You know, you have cats who can't have like little knickknacks or you're going to knock them over and you can't have plants. But you love cats. I Cats, like I said, are the main thing about me. If I could have come on your podcast and talked about my cats for an hour and like I thought you wouldn't stop me, I would have tried to do it. Um, they're but what is it? What is it about cats that is so uh, charms you? I have liked cats my whole life. When I was like three or four, I was like stealing the neighbor's cats and like trying to bring them home. So my parents had to get me my own cat. So I quit stealing the neighbor's cats. Then I lived in the rural, rural South, like smaller than where I graduated. Someone swerved off the road to hit my cat and killed it. And that was Mary, Mary the cat. I was like four and we had the very Mary. Um, but I've had cats my whole life. There's just... I can't even explain why and how I feel drawn to them. I just like love them immediately. There's that parasite that that cats you can get from cats that like it like makes you care for them. Have you read about this? Do you know anything no. about it? No, no, uh, you no. can Google it and like I'm probably exaggerating it a little bit, but like the parasite like uh, sometimes tricks uh, 
the prey of cats and the thinking the cat's their friend, right? So then they're like more docile and the cat can kill them. But like humans get this parasite and are more inclined to care for cats. I probably got this at a really young age. Um, so anytime someone hates cats, I totally like understand and don't look askance at that. Like good, good for you. You escaped like being like a cat servant. Cause I feel like I'm like the chef maid that like puts on airs by holding them when they don't want to be held. So, <laughs> I love cats, but we have bad cat allergies in my household, so it's not possible. I'm on three different prescriptions. I have such a bad cat allergy that when they like did the test where they put all the, the things on you, they couldn't tell if I was allergic to four or five things around where they pricked me for cat because it swole up so big. Uh, so I'm very allergic to them and just on medication. And that helps? That does the trick? Yeah. Now it's perfect. It helps too much, in fact. Uh, my second or third year in Los Angeles, the building I lived in got bed bugs. And I didn't know it because I was non reactive to the bites. Uh, they were biting me. And I was on so much allergy medication that there was just no reaction at all. So they got really bad. And my building management didn't tell me that everyone around me had bed bugs. So, like, my apartment was like eaten up with them before I figured it out. So yes. I lost, like, I had to buy a new bed. I washed and dried all my clothes on high heat and they're like ruined, right? Like, you can't wash and dry, like, a winter coat on high heat, right? Like everything was ruined. And my landlord's like, eh? Yeah. That's felt like karma. Though. I was like, I deserve this. It's fine. Yeah. But for somebody who cares about cleanliness, bed bugs are a problem. It was, yeah, I still have bad dreams and wake up and have to like tear my bed apart and like look under the bed and follow all the seams and check it um, all the time. So. All right. Well, Congratulations to you on this book. <laughs> Thanks, um, I feel like this book is an externalization. It, it is taking the interior stuff of your life and your relationship to cleanliness and rendering it in beautiful artwork. So look at you. And, and also, it's a triumph of endurance because you had previous efforts that did not come to fruition and you just kept going. And I think that's maybe the biggest takeaway here. You're just somebody who keeps going. Maybe most yeah. writers who publish are that way, but you, you seem to have had to travel a hard road. Like nobody handed you anything. It didn't feel that way. Uh, though I, I have to admit that I've had a lot of help, right? Like I've had a lot of legs up, a lot of help. I got my agent because I had a friend that like had that agent, right? And like my advisor, Amy Bender, I was the chair of my dissertation. It was like super helpful in lots of ways, right? She's doing my reading, um, uh, next week, right in Los Angeles. So, like, I've had lots of help too. Um, but yeah. Well, would you have anything else cooking? You got another book in the works? I um, I don't remember who the whose reading it was at. Maybe it was Sarah Rose Edders. Someone asked her that question, and she like declined to answer uh, because she's still in the in the mix. I am working on something else, but I am like quietly working on it. Yeah, I get that. But you are working on something. Is it a novel? Can you say that? Yes. Is it? It's a novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm working on another novel for sure. Does it have anything to do with cleanliness at all? <laughs> um, maybe, maybe a little bit. I feel like that has to seep in because it's such a big part of my personality. It's hard to like describe things or talk about any kind of setting or environment without that kind of like getting in there. Yeah, it's like I mean that's a, it's like kind of body horror, but it's more just like germ horror. I don't know, like you know how body horror is a thing in fiction. Sure. 
people will get really into the graphic descriptions of the body and all of its grossness and majesty yeah. or whatever. But like with you, it was like these really wondrous descriptions of like the in, inside of a microwave after somebody's food has exploded or you're very good at describing like the weird combinations of smells <laughs> that you might encounter in an office environment where somebody's got like, I don't even know, but you, you could probably recall better than I, but I remember m on multiple occasions reading your novel, just sort of like nodding in horror as I recognized my own experiences. <laughs> That's so nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad I grossed you out and, uh, you know, haunted dream. your dreams. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate the time. Congrats again and best of luck on this mysterious next novel. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, everybody. There we go. That was my conversation with Brandy Wells. Wasn't that fun? Their new novel is called The Cleaner, available now from Hanover Square Press. You can find Brandy on the internet at brandymwells.com. Follow them on social media, Twitter, and Instagram. One more time, the novel is called The Cleaner, available now wherever books are sold. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show. Follow me on social media. Uh, what is it? TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. It's all over the place. If you would like to get my weekly email newsletter, you can do that by signing up for free over at bradlisty.substack.com. Join the Other People Patreon community at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to help me out a little bit, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, whatever it is rate the show, write a little review if that's an option. It helps the cause. It helps the show in the rankings. It helps it find new listeners. If you would like to get some other people apparel, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Likewise, you can sign up for the Other People Book Club over at otherppl.com. Get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days for only $9.99 a month. That's less than the cost of a book by a good bit. Finally, a quick plug for my latest book. It is a novel called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I will read it to you. There are options. If you want to read my book, you can do that. It's out there. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Okay, so coming up on Wednesday, my guest will be Margot Livesey. She has a new novel out called The Road from Bellhaven. It is outstanding, and I'm very excited to share that conversation with you in just a couple of days. So, stay tuned.